The Oath Keepers come into the news as CNN pushes a conspiracy theory that they were working with the Secret Service and somehow that meant that we are in a coup to overthrow the government. I'm not making that up either. That's not satire. That's actually what's in the Washington Post and the CNN articles we have to top the show. In other news, AOC and Beto come out to do the Lord's work in Texas, and AOC is doing more for Texas than she ever did for her district in New York, so we'll talk just a bit about that. Esther Salas goes back onto the news and comes out and talks about her experience when somebody came in and shot her son and tried to kill her. That had totally nothing to do with Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, so we'll talk a bit about that. And Operation Broken Hearts brings in 37 more people who are tied with human trafficking and child sex trafficking. So we'll end it on a good note here because people who are doing bad stuff are now going to jail and maybe some kids are coming home. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. You know, guys, I just realized this morning that at the end of the week is going to be episode 260, which means we have been doing this for 52 weeks. 52 weeks, of course, is what they consider to be a year as far as weeks go. The actual anniversary of Contemporary is on March 2nd. So that'll be coming up here next Tuesday. I just I went back this morning and looked and saw when the first episode was when I realized that. And yep, March 2nd, so... I don't know if we'll do something special that's on a Tuesday, but uh, we'll see what happens with that. I know that I'm going to have to get up and go to work right away after that. And uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun, though, just to uh, see who's still hanging out here, who's new, who isn't. But yeah, we've been doing this every morning, every weekday morning for a year. And the days that I was traveling for a vacation, we got a friend to do that. And once again, thank you to Jessica Green for coming in and filling in with me while I was driving across the country. That was totally awesome of you, and I can't thank you enough for being able to keep me on the pattern of doing this every single weekday day. Even holidays. Even when Christmas came by and I was up by my parents, we still had an episode. And Thanksgiving as well. We didn't, of course, talk about politics as much. We talked about what we were thankful for. And, you know, we had, uh, I don't, we didn't take calls for Christmas. We did for Thanksgiving, but we talked about what we were thankful for and what was great and what was good and, did some music for uh, Christmas, but yeah, every single weekday day for a year. That's an accomplishment, I feel like anyway, but we can sit here and wax poetic on that for a while, even though the actual day is a week off here, or we can get back and talk to the news, of which there is plenty, and I do apologize for my voice right now. It seems that that sinus infection that I had has moved down into my throat, so I've got that nice, deep, gravelly kind of... James Earl Jones kind of voice going on here, but, you know, once again, we got to keep it going here because, you know, they're not going to stop doing stupid shit. Hopefully a little bit of coffee will suit that here as we're going along. But before we get into this, and I would normally have the Freedom Scoop page up right now, but uh, for whatever reason, we are deep into the rebuild process and it was not loading up. So, I'm just going to tell you about that, but if you go over to freedomscoop.com and bookmark the link, we are currently under construction right now, but that doesn't stop you from going out and checking out our friends over at The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, 
the Freckles and Brit Show and the R-Rated Conservative. Head on over there, hit the bookmark, so once we're back up, you can follow them and pick up some of our swag and help us support great creators. All right, looking at the Dow here, we have got uh, an update, but just slightly an update. It looks like it reloaded in the uh, time where I was talking here, but at the beginning there, we were up 0.92%, less than a point up. So now, yep, there it goes. It went back and reloaded. So yeah, the markets were just less than a point up and just barely a percentage point, not even a percentage point up here. So it looks like they stayed up all day. Uh, they wanted, uh, landed mostly flat throughout uh, Friday. And now we're going to see where they go from there. Let's have a look at that from IBD. Excuse me. From IBD, Dow Jones Futures signal stock market rally retreat, Tesla Model Y, SR pulled, Boeing 777, Jets in focus from Ed Carson. Dow Jones Futures fell Monday morning along with S&P 500 Futures and NASDAQ Futures after the stock market rally showed resilience last week. The Bitcoin price tumbled after soaring to fresh highs over the weekend. Dow giant Boeing fell just as uh, it grounded mini 777 Jets. Tesla pulled the base Model Y SR Plus after launching it just last month. The signals Tesla stock will break through or below key levels after testing them last week. Solar IPO, Shoals Technologies, 5G chipmakers Corvo and Max Linear, Dow Jones Giant Microsoft are all near buy points with SH, uh, SH rather LS stock and Microsoft already actionable and Apple supplier Corvo arguably so. The Dow Jones actually edged higher last week while the S&P 500 and NASDAQ fell modestly, rallying off short-term support. Growth stocks, especially more speculative names, suffered significant to sharp losses, though they were generally rebounded on Friday. Metals, miners, and financial stocks were among strong performers. Well, metals, of course, because people are buying into it, but once again, keep in mind, last week we were sitting back looking at the fact that so many of the power companies are in such high demand and able to generate much more electricity than they normally would have. And Dow is an industrial index, so the industrials are especially going to be looking up. And once again, as I pointed out last week, infrastructure is going to be the first thing on the docket. So people are going to start making their equipment so they can start doing more roads, more buildings, um, more electrical lines, more of that, because there's a Democrat in office and that's what they do. That's part of their platform. We do infrastructure because then we can make jobs. That's the easiest way we know how to make jobs. So we will see what is happening with that. Still, the recent action highlights the need for proper entries and sound sell rules. The problem with such a uh, strong stock market rally is that it's a bad teacher, just like in Easy A. Everyone enjoys easy money, but if you learn the wrong lessons from the past 10 months, then that easy money will go away quickly. While the NASDAQ is no longer extended, margin debt and investor exposure overall is a growing concern. Tesla and Microsoft are on the IBD leaderboard. Microsoft is on the IBD long-term leaders. SHLS stock is on the IBD stock of the day. MXL stock is the focus of a recent IBD stock analysis column. On the futures, Dow Jones futures fell 0.7% versus Ferrier value. S&P 500 futures sank 0.9% and NASDAQ 100 futures lost a point and a half. 
The FAA ordered inspections of Boeing 777 jets after an engine caught fire mid-flight Saturday with many parts falling in the Denver area. Oh, I didn't even put that story up there. I put that on on the Red Net Show tonight, so we'll uh, talk just a bit about that a little bit more. The plane landed softly, but the aerospace giant said it would ground 777 jets with the same Pratt & Whitney PW4000 engine. Boeing stock fell 3% early on Monday. Remember, pre-market action in Dow futures and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. Alright, let's look on to Market Watch and see what we've got going on here. Boeing stock sell-off would cut Dow's price by 56 points after United pulls 777s from service. From Tommy Kilgore, shares of Boeing dropped 3.9% early Monday to pace all of Dow Jones' industrial average pre-market decliners. After United Airlines Holdings Incorporated said it was temporarily removing 777s from service in the wake of an engine blowing apart while in flight over the weekend. The Federal Aviation Administration has ordered United to st uh, step up inspections of all of its 777s. Boeing's implied uh, stock sell-off would lower the Dow's price by about 56 points. While Dow futures shed 165 points, shares of Raytheon Technologies Corp., the parent of Pratt & Whitney, which made the engine, slid 2.9% in the pre-market, while United stock inched up less than 0.1%. So, with uh, Boeing coming in here, that's probably going to pull a slide in the Dow, but once again, the equipment repair and the truck repair and everything that goes along with road construction is probably going to hold it back up here, but we will see what happens throughout the week. Let's have a quick look at Bitcoin here, which is now sitting at 52610 US dollars and 70 US cents, up from Friday, which is a good thing here. And the market cap on Bitcoin hit a trillion dollars. Reading now from CNBC, yes, we are going to continue without supporting. Elon Musk says Bitcoin seems high after surpassing a trillion dollars in market value from Emma Neuberger. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said Saturday that Bitcoin prices seem high after the cryptocurrency surged to another record high this week. The price of Bitcoin, the world's most popular cryptocurrency, crossed a major milestone Friday after the market value reached more than a trillion dollars, leaving some major backers surprised. Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency, also hit record highs. Well, the value of the dollar is going down, so what do you expect is going to happen to it? Money is just money, and that allows us to avoid the inconvenience of barter, tweeted Musk, a major proponent of digital currencies. That data, like all data, is subject to latency and error. The system will evolve to oh, that which minimizes both. In a following post, Musk added that said BTC and ETH do seem high, lol, in a response to a user who said gold was better than both Bitcoin and cash. What is it that Ron likes to say? Um, um if you can't hold it or mold it, you should have sold it. Well, I don't know. Bitcoin is uh, kind of holding against that right now, but... That's something that we have to look at in the long term. It's, it's like the vaccine right now. Yes, there are people who have faith in the vaccine, and there are people who have faith in Bitcoin. But in a relative state, we don't have the long-term effects on either technology. The coronavirus vaccine got pushed out in a year. We have no idea what the long-term effects on the coronavirus vaccine are going to be. None whatsoever. And Bitcoin? 
when compared to every other money in the world is relatively new. We have no idea how that's going to perform long term, especially if there is some sort of EMP attack or something else that goes along with that. Now, it could, because of the way it's structured, it actually could very well hold up. But we don't know what the long term of Bitcoin is yet. It does seem high, but it's definitely a good benchmark to see and to show the normies in the world what the Federal Reserve is actually doing when they print the money as they do. But I do want to congratulate the founder of Bitcoin on $1 trillion worth of market uh, cap. That's great. But we will follow this as well and see what happens. <clears throat> Let me get a drink of coffee here, see if I can soothe the old throat a little bit here. And we will talk about CNN's conspiracy theory. All right, from the Washington Post. U.S. alleges wider Oath Keepers conspiracy adds more charges in January Capitol riot. From Spencer H. Shu and Rachel Weiner. U.S. authorities on Friday alleged a broader conspiracy to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th among members and associates of the Oath Keepers naming six new individuals charged in the case, all of whom appear to be group members or associates. One member posted on Facebook that 50 to 100 Oath Keepers planned to attend that January 6th would be wild, echoing then-President Donald Trump's comments on Twitter rallying supports in D.C. A 21-page indictment alleged that the defendants did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with each other and others known and unknown to force entry into the Capitol and obstruct Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden as president in riots that led to five deaths and assaults on 139 police. Citation needed, please. The nine-person indictment named three already charged military veterans, Jessica Marie Watkins and Donovan Ray Crowell, both of Woodstock, Ohio, and Thomas E. Caldwell of Berryville, Virginia. The six new defendants include siblings Graydon Young, Laura Steele. It also include married couples Kelly and Connie Meggs, and Danellen, and Benny and Sandra Parker of the Cincinnati area. On December 22nd, Kelly Meggs wrote a Facebook message saying that Trump's comment that January 6th would be wild meant that he wants us to make it wild. He called us to the Capitol. Gentlemen, we are heading to D.C., the indictment alleges. <clears throat> Meggs added a few days later there would be at least 50 to 100 Oath Keepers in attendance. Steele allegedly emailed Meggs and Florida Oath Keepers on January 3rd to her brother's suggestion to expedite her application and join the group to participate in the events on January 5th and 6th. Trump said it's going to be wild. He wants us to make it wild. That's what he's saying, Steele allegedly wrote in an electronic message. <clears throat> he called us to the Capitol. Sir, yes, sir. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gentlemen, we are heading to D.C., the charging document said. Prosecutors allege that the group conspired to attend or schedule paramilitary combat training, recruited supporters online, and coordinated and joined forces with members of Oath Keepers and people from the other regions to attack the capital in military-style camouflage, tactical gear, and in a single-file stack formation. The six-count indictment includes charges of aiding and abetting the obstruction of an official proceeding, destruction of government property, tampering with documents, and trespassing. The obstruction charge is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Prosecutors said the group used Zello, a walkie-talkie-like application, and created a channel called Stop the Steal J6 to develop plans and communicate during the operation. The 
In audio recordings obtained by the FBI, Watkins, a former Army captain, allegedly said, while in the Capitol, she was leading a group of 30 to 40 others who forced entry and overran police. So with that, we're looking at, into some of this here, and we're looking into some of the investigation. Now, as we've seen with friends of the show, and I'm not going to name names, but I think a lot of you know who I'm talking about with that. But with friends of the show, we're seeing the fact that they're trying to pin and put everybody into prison who dared step into the Capitol, whether it was journalist, an independent journalist, or it was somebody who was going into storm. And I don't doubt that there were people that were going in looking out to storm. And we're also looking at some people who are rolling over on Trump. Uh, Jessica Green, another friend of the show, just posted on Twitter a little bit ago, and I responded already, the fact she wonders how many of these people are being leaned on with their families um, in jeopardy. You know, like we saw with Michael Flynn. Oh, well, you turn over on this, or you, you come back and admit to this, even though you did it or not. And, uh, you know, we'll go easy on it, but, I mean, wouldn't it be a shame if, you know, Something happened to your kid while he was going in school or, you know, your kids were go growing up. With they're, they're pulling that kind of tactics. And it's funny to me because some people were responding back to Jessica saying that, oh, no, no, none of these people are just rolling over because they're being leaned on. Alleging the fact that the justice system is pure and just and amazing and never does anything wrong. When the same people, especially if they've got hashtag Biden, hashtag Harris in their profile, which one of them does. We're protesting on how evil and unjust and systemically bad the justice system was. Now, of course, they're doing it on race when they're doing it um, over the summer. But still, they spent the entire summer speaking out and protesting against the Justice Department. And now, because they're going after Trump supporters, it's clean and pure and amazing and wonderful. So... We will definitely be watching what comes back out of this. We will see who can still vote, who can't vote, and what happens at the end of all this. Let's see what CNN has to say. And this is kind of the entertaining one, I thought. Oath Lamer, uh, Keeper rather claims she was VIP security at Trump rally before riot and says she met with Secret Service agents. From Caitlin Polance. A leader in an alleged Oath Keepers conspiracy in the U.S. Capitol insurrection claimed she was given a VIP pass to the pro-Trump rally on January 6th, had met with Secret Service agents, and was providing security for the legislatures and others, including in their march to the Capitol, according to a new court filing. Attorneys for Ohio Oath Keeper Jessica Watkins detail how the efforts among paramilitants who are now accused of conspiracy on January 6th were closer to the apparatus around then-President Donald Trump and his rally than was previously known. By sharing the new details in the filing Saturday, the defense attorney for Watkins, a former Army Ranger who served in Afghanistan, argues for her release from jail on bond and other restrictions as she awaits trial. On January 5th and 6th, Ms. Watkins was present, not as an insurrectionist, but to provide security to the speakers. At the rally, to provide escort for the legislators and others to march on the Capitol, as directed by the then-president, and to safely escort protesters away from the Capitol to their vehicles and cars at the conclusion of the protest, the court filing said on Saturday. She was given a VIP pass to the rally. She met with Secret Service agents. She was within 50 feet of the stage during the rally to provide security for the speakers. At the time the Capitol was breached, she was still at the site of the initial rally where she had provided security. 
The U.S. Secret Service, in response to Watkins' claims in the Saturday filing, denied that private citizens were working with the Secret Service to provide security on January 6th. To carry out its protective functions on January 6th, the U.S. Secret Service relied on the assistance of various government partners. Any assertion that the Secret Service employed private citizens to perform those functions is false, a U.S. Secret Service spokesperson said in a statement on CNN on Sunday. So, Secret Service is saying no. This woman is saying yes. Occam's razor suggests that, yes, a bunch of people did come out and say, hey, Oath Keepers, come on and protect us. We want to protect because we're going to go out here and rally, and Antifa is going to come back and throw bricks and shit at us as we're breaking up the rally. That's what Occam's razor suggests. As far as, I mean, with this article coming out, you saw Twitter explode with people saying, oh, well, I mean, look at this. Because this woman was working with the Secret Service. I mean, the Secret Service is denying it, but uh, she was working with the Secret Service. That means this was a coup. This was an absolute coup. No. Look at this in the simplest way possible. And it was the same thing with um, Roger Stone when he was seen with the Oath Keepers. Roger Stone in D.C. is going to have a very, very, very hard time getting any sort of security whatsoever. None. People are going to look at Roger Stone and the fact that he wants to be in Washington, D.C. and say, nope, I don't want to be anywhere near this. Except for the Oath Keepers who look at this and say, well, this is going to be a good way for us to get up there and do what we believe in. So, and once again, I look back at this too and I start to wonder if people are just leaning on Miss Watkins here and getting her to say what they want her to say so they can put it back on record. I'm... I've seen a lot of conspiracy, and I've fallen down a lot of rabbit hole from this whole Capitol riot thing. And honestly, I don't know. There, I see a lot of evidence that the government might have known that this was going to happen, possibly even coordinated it, especially given the fact that they had a gigantic domestic security bill sitting on the table the same day, and 20,000 pages on the same day that this all happened. Oh, hey, let's go vote on this bill now. Let's see if we can get that passed. But as far as, like, the Oath Keepers and stuff like that, I I don't think that she was working with the Secret Service. I do think that she was there because people were asking, hey, what are we going to do? What happens when Antifa comes in? What happens when BLM comes in and starts fighting and throwing bricks and shooting fireworks and the Oath Keeper? I mean, most of the people who were out there for the rally were not... Armed to, well, obviously not armed to the teeth because Bowser had uh, the weapons ban in place, but uh, they weren't armed to the teeth libertarians. They were your average factory worker who lived under a great economy under Trump and waved the MAGA flag and wanted to make sure that we had four more years of Trump. They're not going to go out there to try and beat the shit back out of Antifa, so of course they wanted security. And of course, we remember back now that Antifa didn't really show up, but, I mean, preparation is key for something like this. So, <clears throat> I guess we'll see what happens with this and where this winds up landing, but once again, Occam's Razor is, yeah, she probably was there for additional security, but she probably wasn't working with the Secret Service, and the prosecution is probably sitting here leaning on her, trying to uh, get her to roll over so they can come back and maybe try Trump in a uh in a civilian court? I don't know. But this probably wasn't as big a news as Twitter made it out to be.
All right, let's keep going. From the Biden administration, from Axios, Collins likely to be a no on Tandon, a sign of Biden's peril, from Hans Nichols. Close associates of Senator Susan Collins tell Axios they're convinced that she'll vote against Neera Tandon to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget, eliminating a possibility, uh, possible rather safety valve to save the nomination. Tandon's uphill climb is emblematic of challenges facing some of President Biden's remaining high-profile nominees. Interior Department pick Deb Haaland, Health and Human Services Secretary-designate Xavier Baquera, and Attorney General-designee Merrick Garland risk varying outcomes. Senator Joe Manson's uh, surprise announcement last week that he opposed Tandon effectively put the White House on notice that any number of their nominees could implode in the 50-50 Senate. Democrats are privately concerned Manchin isn't finished trying to wield veto power and could announce his opposition to some of Biden's environmental nominees. Potential targets include Michael Regan, the nominee to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, and Elizabeth Klein, the nominee for Deputy Interior Secretary. Manchin sued the EPA in 2010 while serving as the governor of West Virginia. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's definitely interesting to see. We'll talk about this later on today. His defection over Tandon was also a reminder to the White House that there's no margin for error on looming legislative battles, from potential tax increases to climate policy. A no vote from Collins doesn't seal Tandon's fate, but it does make it less likely she would be confirmed. The White House is redoubling its efforts to convince Republicans to support her. Collins hasn't publicly indicated how she will vote, saying last November, I've heard that she's a very prolific user of Twitter. A Collins spokesperson didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. Tannen, who once called Collins the worst on Twitter, has apologized for her tweets and met with 35 Democratic and Republican senators. So, Manchin is saying no. Sanders is on the fence. I don't know if he's going to do it. And Collins is saying no. You're running out of options for this one here on getting other Republicans to come back in. Now, of course, you've always got the wild cards of Romney and Murkowski. Who could go either direction in any of this? But uh, yeah, definitely something to watch on this. And especially seeing with uh, Merrick Garland, his hearing is starting today. And he's pissed a lot of Republicans off too. And Manchin. So we will see what's coming out of that. Something definitely to look for here. From the Daily Wire. Report, Clyburn floating South Carolina judge for future, uh, future rather SCOTUS vacancy. Once again, proving the fact that the Supreme Court is nothing but a death watch for ancient people who are in the judiciary, from Eric Quintanar. Congressman Jim Clyburn, the high-ranking House Democrat, credited with resurrecting Joe Biden's 2020 trailing presidential campaign in the South Carolina primary, reportedly held a meeting with Vice President Kamala Harris this month to float a South Carolina judge to the Supreme Court. The New York Times, a former newspaper citing a Democrat briefed in the conversation, who was unnamed because he's a New York Times source, reports that Clyburn floated the idea of nominating District ju uh, Court Judge J. Michelle Childs, 54, should a Supreme Court vacancy open up soon. A graduate of the University of South Carolina School of Law, Childs was reportedly the first black woman to be made partner at a major law firm in the state and has previously served as a top official in the South Carolina Labor Department. So, here we go, once again, the death watch here. And given the fact that they're already talking about this, I don't, I don't know. 
I don't want to go full Alex Jones because with the sore throat that I have right now, I don't think I can do the impression like I usually would be able to do. But, uh, you know, we're sitting here looking at the fact that they're already talking about somebody and I, are they going to take a shot at somebody? I, I, are, is somebody going to get scalia I have no idea. Definitely an interesting thing to watch, but we will see where that goes. Let's move on here. i got a couple tweets here. Uh, one is from Lauren Boebert. Protecting and defending the Constitution doesn't mean trying to rewrite the parts that you don't like. In which Twitter exploded, come back, uh, coming back out and talking about the fact that, well, we have amendments. What, what do you mean we, have, we, we can't change the Constitution, get rid of the parts we don't like? We have amendments. Yes, that's true. Now, once we start getting to the point where we're going to start making amendments to get rid of people's fundamental rights and give the government much more power, which already has too much of, then we have destroyed and gone against the spirit of the Constitution. So definitely something that we need to watch for on that. But uh, yeah, that was probably worded in the worst possible way. But I mean, Bobit's going to be the next boogeyman coming out of here because... People have realized that nobody gives two flying fucks about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But we will see what happens from that. And I've got another one here from Madison Cawthorn. And this was uh, retweeted by Brad Palumbo and replied to by Elaine, my wonderful co-host on the other show. This is what they're spending their time on right now. Breaking. I'm proposing a new constitutional amendment. The Second Amendment must be underlined and bolded. I suspect that this will help Democrats who, bless their hearts, <clears throat> excuse me, seem to skip over it entirely. That's what you're spending your time on, Cawthorn. That's what you're spending your time on. Good job. All right, let's keep going. From the blaze, alarming items stuffed inside House Dems' $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, health surveillance animal COVID studies. From Chris Enloe, House Democrats unveiled Friday the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package. They hope to pass by late next week. Included in the bill are $1,400 stimulus checks, not $2,000, and numerous other pandemic-related relief measures like additional funding for state and local governments and more federal unemployment benefits. The bill, which was stitched together by Democratic-controlled House Budget Committee, according to Reuters, was also filled with dozens of items completely unrelated to the direct pandemic relief. And there is, if we wanted to go, the full 591-page bill, which we're not going to do on the morning show, because that would be a lot of time, and there's still a lot of news here to get to. Federal minimum wage increase. Probably dead on arrival, because you're not going to get past the filibuster on that. Animal COVID studies. Socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. Addressing farm loans, the bill states the Agriculture Department shall not provide, or shall rather provide a payment in an amount equal to 120% of the outstanding indebtedness of each socially disadvantaged farmer or rancher as of January 20, uh, 1st, 2021 to pay off the loan directly or to the socially disadvantaged farmer or rancher. By socially disadvantaged, they mean black. <clears throat> Student loan outreach. 
The bill allocates $91 million for the Department of Education to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus domestically or internationally. Yeah, I talked about student loan in a uh, solo video. If you guys want to go over on the YouTube channel, you can go back and watch that. I'm pretty proud of that. And the, I mean, the reach that it got from me, who hasn't made a solo video in probably almost a year. No, that's not true, because I endorsed Trump at the 11th hour, but uh, and I made a solo video about that. But for someone who rarely makes solo videos anymore, that one got enough reach. And I mean, I was proud of the idea. It's not perfect, but definitely something to look into and do it a different way than they're trying to do it in the government currently. So the bill allocates $135 million to the National Endowment for the Arts and another $135 million to the National Endowment of the Humanities. Also, $200 million to the Institute of Museum and Library Services, places that are not open right now. The bill gives $10 million to the preservation and maintenance of Native American languages. A billion dollars to strengthen vaccine confidence in the U.S. So, propaganda. A billion dollars worth of propaganda. Uh, $50 million to family planning. $750 million for the director of the Centers for Disease Control to combat SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and other emerging infectious diseases threats globally, including efforts related to global health security, global disease detection and response, global health protection, global immunization, and global coordination of public health. Uh, it says health surveillance, $500 million to support public health data surveillance and analytics infrastructure modernization initiatives at the CDC, and $15 billion to the airlines. Which is why, for $1.9 trillion, you only get a measly, meager $1,400. Alright, I've got one here. Oh, this is going to be fun with a sore throat, but uh, I've got one here from NPR. U.S. officially rejoins Paris Agreement on Climate Change. From HJMI, remember, NPR is funded in part by viewers like you, so give them your money because your tax money isn't enough for them, and they love to have your money. Let's read what HJMI has to say. <clears throat> the U.S. on Friday officially rejoined the Paris Agreement on Climate Change designed to limit global warming and avoid its potentially ca uh, catastrophic impacts. Nearly 200 nations have signed on to the landmark accord and committed to limit their greenhouse gas emissions in an attempt to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably below 1.5 degrees Celsius, compared to pre-industrial temperatures. The Paris Agreement is an unprecedented framework for global action. We know because we helped design it and make it a reality, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in a statement. Its purpose is both simple and expensive, to help us avoid catastrophic planetary warming and build resilience around the world to the impacts from climate change we already see, which is all well and good. I don't believe climate change is a man-made phenomenon. I believe that climate change is happening. However, I would like to live in a much cleaner environment than we currently have. And I can get on board with what they're trying to do to clean up the environment, to clean up the air, and to clean up the emissions. I can definitely get on board with all that. The trouble that I have with this is that it is just, it's a tax shakedown, that's all it is, because industry under the Paris Climate Accord, especially in places like India and China, can buy the credits and offset. They just pay the money in and they can continue to pollute as much as they possibly want to. And while the U.S. 
with private industry and the European Union, with more publicized industry, are going leaps and bounds in research and lowering emissions, even without the Paris Climate Accord. We lowered emissions after we left the uh, Paris Climate Accord in this country. Emissions in Iran and India and China keep going up. They keep belching that black smoke from their factories out into the air. So yes, clean up the environment. Good. Paris Climate Accord is just an excuse to get more money to redistribute while selling carbon offsets and letting industrials continue to belch black smoke into the air. <clears throat> All right. So we will see what happens with that. Let's keep going. I got one from The Hill. Please allow ads on our site. No. Kerry warns that the U.S. has nine years to avoid the worst climate consequences. Dude, wasn't it nine years when I was in grade school? I was informed that I wasn't going to make it through graduation because we had damaged our environment so bad. And that was in the very last part of the 80s. Because I started in kindergarten, what, 88? Yeah, 88, I think. U.S. has nine years to avoid the worst climate consequences. From Rachel Frazen. Special Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. John Kerry warned Friday that there are just nine years left for the U.S. to obey the worst possible climate change consequences. Oh, that's interesting. It's around 2030. Hmm. I wonder what else is supposed to happen around 2030. Anybody? Any idea? During remarks at the Munich Security Conference, Kerry noted that a group of scientists told us three years ago that we had 12 years. Around 2030 is the date at which we have to get the world now on the right path in order to cap the level of warming at that level of one and a half degrees. He made similar remarks during a recent interview with CBS News. The scientists told us three years ago that we had 12 years to avert the worst consequences of climate crisis. We're now three years gone, so we have nine years left. But I, I can justify the fact that I use a private jet to get around to these because I'm John Kerry and I'm important enough. And I can go to these speaking events without having to fly on the jet with the plebs. Oh, that's cool. That reloaded. He made similar remarks during a recent interview with CBS News. The former Secretary of State appeared to be referring to a 2018 U.S. Nations, I'm sorry, United Nations report, which warned that the global emissions needed to degree, uh, decrease by 45% by 2030 in order to avert one and a half degrees of global warming. The Biden administration is expected to release an updated set of emissions reductions goals before Earth Day this year. Because why wouldn't it be Earth Day? We all need to develop not just a number, but a roadmap for how we will actually make the dramatic progress we need to make over the next 10 years, and what we will specifically do to get net zero by no later than 2050. 
I'm confused. If we want to get to 2050 now, why are we so concerned about what's happening in 2030? Other than, of course, the UN agenda that's being pushed through and uh, being talked about in certain circles. So, you guys got nine years. If you have any plans, then I would stop them because nine years is coming. All right, from the New York Post. Homeowners hit with electric bills as high as $17,000 amid Texas winter storm. From Natalie O'Neill. Texans say energy companies are on a power trip. No pun intended. Electric bills in the Lone Star State skyrocketed to as high as 17000 per month after a historic storm and power outage sparked a high demand for heat, according to reports on Friday. Dallas area resident Ty Williams was hit with a sticker shock when his monthly bill soared from $600 last month to nearly $17,000 so far this month, according to local station WFAA. How in the world can anyone pay that? I mean, you go from a couple hundred bucks a month, there's absolutely no way. It makes no sense. Williams, who said he received the bill from the energy firm Gritty. The power, uh, price of power rather in Texas spiked from $50 to $9,000 9, per megawatt in some cases due to the supply and demand disaster, according to the station. Customers with so-called variable or indexed electricity plans, the only state to run its own unique standalone electricity grid, are partially controlled by market demand. Okay, <clears throat> and there are a couple things to see here. Number one, first and foremost, I talked about uh, last week the fact that there is infrastructure problem going on in Texas right now. They're just starting to get it all cleared up. So yes, there's problems with that. But people are calling this capitalism at work, and this is not capitalism by any stretch of the imagination. This is actually honestly closer to socialism than capitalism. Because, yes, the Texas Power Company is technically a private industry, but only on the most technical terms because the cities, counties, and the state of Texas are all providing the infrastructure that gets the power to the homes. So, yes, Gritty is a private company, but so is like Alliant Energy down here in Wisconsin and Wisconsin Power and Light and um, uh, Madison Gas and Electric. Those are all private companies as well. But the municipalities are providing the infrastructure and there's really no way for another uh, private company to come back in and compete against the major utilities. That's something to keep in mind. Yes. The power companies are a private company, but they have a government guarantee monopoly. So yes, they can charge you whatever the fuck they want. That's not capitalism. That's cronyism at best and outright socialism at worst. So, but yeah, that's just ridiculous. And I know that there are probably GoFundMes out there. I'm going to see if I can find a few and throw a couple bucks into them to get some of these people out there and back up because that is a lot of money. But the worst part of this, and the worst part of this entire thing, and I, you know, I listen to Sticks every every day. He puts out like three videos a day at this point, and he pointed out, and I didn't realize this at first, but you know, if this had happened in a in a safe blue state or even a safe red state, we probably wouldn't even be talking about this right now. 
Because this ice storm hit the rest of the country as well. It wasn't just Texas, but Texas. Texas is a swing state, and Ted Cruz going to Cancun probably didn't help the matter either. They're trying to flip Texas as blue as they possibly can, because that guarantees presidential votes from here until the end of time. Now Ted Cruz going to Mexico, and AOC and Pedro O'Rourke going out there, and AOC, of course, doing more for Texas than she's ever done for her state. You can see what they're trying to do with this and why the mainstream media is focusing on this one and not the other states that got hit by the historic ice storm. So we'll see what happens with that and where it goes, and we'll see what we can do to support some of these people who are getting these massive electric bills. I've got a tweet here to read. Speaking of Texas, the Sour Patch Princess says, This is the person that Schenck is. And Schenck says, Only upside of Texas power outages is people like Joe Rogan, who were so proud to leave California and move to Texas, freezing their asses off. They said they wanted less government. Congrats! Mission accomplished! Google it! I hope you're not asking the government to come help you. Hashtag freedom! Yeah, that dude's kind of a prick. Alright, speaking of AOC Biscuit and Pedro O'Rourke. AOC and Beto O'Rourke fundraise provide relief for Texas while Ted Cruz jets off to Mexico. I wonder what the bent is going to be on this news. Considering it's coming from now this. A vice company. From Ashley Carter. <clears throat> Two politicians are helping to provide resources for residents in Texas who went days without electricity, heat, or running water while the state's own senator is under fire for flying to Mexico with his family. This week, the Honorable Venerable Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez D. Twitch and former Representative Pedro O'Rourke, who narrowly lost to Cruz during the 2018 midterms, worked to provide Texans with supplies and conducted welfare checks, respectively, after the state was hit with an unprecedented winter storm. Millions of people in Texas went without power for days after the winter storm, took out the uh, state's power grid, and the American South has seen record-breaking freezing temperatures. At least 47 people have died as a result of the extreme weather on Friday, including at least 30 people in Texas, according to the Washington Post. The Honorable and Venerable Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez de Twitch tweeted Friday that the relief fund she set up raised more than $2 million in one day and will benefit five Texas-based organizations, meanwhile chasing 30,000 jobs out of her district. She also said she would be traveling to Texas on Friday to put her hands on a fence and cry about the kids that in cages, even though she's overlooking an empty parking lot to distribute supplies and help amplify needs and solutions. So I, I'm looking at this, and I understand what's going on with this. This is this is a PR opportunity. This, once again, probably would not have come up had Cruz not flown to Cancun. And I've said on numerous occasions, there was absolutely nothing that Ted Cruz could have done. There was zero bupkis Ted Cruz could have done. But it still looks absolutely terrible when he gets up on a jet while people are still out there trying to thaw out their pipes. So the best thing that he could have done in that situation was to sit back there and freeze with the rest of his constituents or go and do something as far as relief goes in Washington, D.C. Not fucking Cancun. 
That was probably the worst thing he could have done. Now, looking at this, given the fact that O'Rourke is up there, bro, I'm going to call these senior citizens, okay, bro? I'm going to call them. I'm going to skateboard over to their houses. I'm going to shred on my guitar to make sure they're okay, bro. That dude is on the front of this because they're going to run him again. However, and I'm very, very staunch to this here, O'Rourke is probably, at this point, now, Ted Cruz has four years to do good things to try and get a Senate seat back or try to run for the president again. He's got four years to do that. I think right now, if the election was held today, Beto O'Rourke would be the only person that Democrats could run that could lose to Ted Cruz. I think they could put a glass of water and a ham sandwich on a plate and slap a D on that. And that would win against Ted Cruz, but Beto O'Rourke would lose. He's like the only person in the world that could possibly lose to Ted Cruz right now. Because, hell yes, I'm going to take your AR-15, bro. In deep red Texas. So, yeah, anybody else? Anybody else in the world? Who's a prominent uh, Texas Democrat? I don't even know. Because it's such a red state. Anybody else running against Ted Cruz would probably win at this point, except for Beto O'Rourke. All right, let's keep going here. I got one from WCPO 9 News out of Cincinnati. Bill seeks to lover, uh, limit rather Governor Mike DeWine's health orders created legislative committee from Nathan Hart. The Ohio Senate passed a bill this week that would limit the length of Governor Mike DeWine's health orders and establish a legislative committee to oversee the state's health orders. Good. Every executive, every executive in our country should have their powers limited. The legislature should be making the laws, not the executive. The ex executive should be ex uh, executing the laws, enforcing the laws. That's what the executive is. He's not a lawmaker. And if Mike DeWine wants to be a lawmaker, then you could step down from the governor and go back and join the legislature. It's that easy. Senate Bill 22, which passed with a vote of 25 to 8 on Wednesday, would establish a bipartisan legislative committee that would have the power to rescind the governor's or state health department orders and prevent them from being reissued for 30 days. Additionally, the governor's emergency declarations could last for only 90 days. The bill passed on strict party lines with every Republican voting yes and every Democrat voting no. Proponents of the legislation, like the bill sponsor, Senator Rob McCauley, argued the bill would create reasonable limits on the executive branch and restore checks and balances to Ohio's government. Let me be clear at the outset of what this bill does not do, McCauley said. There's nothing in this bill that prohibits the governor or the director of the Department of Health or any other agency from issuing any emergency order. What it does do, as I stated before, it establishes checks and balances to restore the national separation of powers that is necessary for a good and functioning government. And good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Separate the powers. Make the people work for it if they want to come out down and rule with an iron fist. That's what the Constitution was there for. All right. Let's keep going. From NBC News. <clears throat> you know, as much as I was hacking this morning when I got out of bed... 
I'm actually doing surprisingly well talking this entire time through. Not have, I've only had to mute the uh, stream to cough once. I'm kind of excited about that. Maybe that means that this little bit of cold that I have is going to break much sooner. Florida governor accused of playing politics with COVID vaccine. From Corky Simasco. Florida's governor was slow to respond to the pandemic and his COVID-19 vaccine. Um, by the way, I want to point out to somebody in the live chat here, we will not say AOC in this. El the Honorable and Venerable Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez D. Twitch said that using her initials was... Uh, how did she put that? It was disrespectful and it was white supremacist, in spite of the fact that that's her Twitter handle. So we will not use that horrific slur in my live chat. She is the honorable and venerable Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez de Twitch. Florida's governor was slow to respond to the pandemic and his COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan has been marked by chaos. But critics say he's been quick to reorganize or recognize rather the political gold in all those precious doses. Ron DeSantis, a Republican, ignored the federal guidelines and prioritized uh, getting senior citizens, one of Florida's most potent voting blocks, vaccinated first. You know, like we all said that you should have been doing when they first started talking about a vaccine. You know, even people in blue districts were saying that we were going to vaccinate the elderly first. This is not a political thing. This is what most people agreed on with the disease that's affecting elderly more than anybody else. This was what we agreed on was probably the best course of action was to get the elderly vaccinated first. <clears throat> when Holocaust survivors and Cuban survivors of the Bay of Pigs debacle revered members of other uh, two other key Florida voting blocks got their first shots. DeSantis made sure he was there for the news conferences. And now the governor stands accused of using COVID-19 vaccine to reward powerful political supporters and developers by setting up pop-up vaccination sites and planned communities they developed and where GOP voters predominate. Responding to recent criticism from both Republican and Democrats in Manatee and Charlotte counties, both south of Tampa, there was one site set up last week and another began dispensing doses on Wednesday. DeSantis said local lawmakers should be more grateful. I'll tell you what. I wouldn't be complaining, the governor said. I'd be thankful that we're able to do this. Anything that they can possibly do anywhere to smear Ron DeSantis, they're going to do at this point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because they need to distract you from the uh, fact that he left his state almost entirely open through the entire time. There were a couple mandates and lockdowns here and there at the beginning and a couple of restrictions. Even when I was down there, you had the signs, the social distancing. And for the most part, though, it stayed open. And he's got a similar rate and numbers than in California, who locked everything down tighter than a drum. And yes, we did agree right off the beginning that because this was affecting the elderly more than anybody else. Kids had an almost 0% chance of getting COVID-19 and dying from it especially. 
that the elderly should be the first ones in line if they want to get it. Now, we shouldn't be forcing them to get it, but they should be the first in line if they want to get the vaccine. But now it's political capitalization because the elderly people vote overwhelmingly Republican. That's what your mainstream media is going to come out and tell you. Let's keep going here. From the blaze. Democratic Representative Ro Khanna admits Democrats don't want small businesses that pay less than $15 an hour minimum wage. We don't want low-wage businesses. So we don't want a startup. We, want, we only want businesses that are rich. We only want rich people to start businesses. Hang on just a sec. I guess I spoke too soon. This is from Chris Enlow. California Democrat Representative Ro Khanna, who I always assume is a Bajoran because of the, the Ro name, because of Ensign Ro Lauren from, uh, or Ro Lauren, it was it, from uh, Next Generation, essentially argued Sunday that Democrats believe no jobs are better than underpaying jobs, those that pay less than 15 bucks an hour. During an appearance on CNN's Inside Politics, host Abby Phillip asked Kana whether Democrats should be pushing for an increased federal minimum wage as the pandemic continues to adversely affect the American economy. Phillips noted that uh, millions of Americans remain out of work, particularly in retail and service industries, that are more likely to pay employees the minimum wage. Kana claimed that now is the right time, by citing Amazon and Target, two massive companies that set their minimum wages at $15 an hour and even alleged that increasing the minimum wage creates jobs. Philip responded by asking again about small businesses, not large corporations, that can generally afford to pay higher wages and can also afford to pay off politicians. I'm wondering, what's your plan for smaller businesses, she asked. How does this, in your view, affect mom-and-pop businesses who are just struggling to keep the doors open? Keep workers on the payroll right now. Shockingly, Kana said small businesses should not keep their doors open if they do not pay employees the wage the Democrats are demanding. There you go. Ro Kana hates small business. How long is this? How long is this? Seven minutes. No, we're not going to do seven minutes. It's not heaven. We're not going to do seven minutes. But that's what Ro Khanna thinks of your small business. And even there, there are a lot of small businesses out there that are paying more than what they're mandating as the minimum wage. But you, have to, you do have to compete to get the workers off of there. But yes, this absolutely destroys the ability. And in, <clears throat> I mean in California where Khanna is, that's going to be a little bit different, too, because in order to afford a meager 600-square-foot hole-in-the-wall one-bedroom apartment with one bathroom and half the fixtures on the inside broken, you know, like the one that I live in right now, where it's 600 bucks here, you would need to have, make uh, $30 an hour in California to afford the same kind of place. And your security deposit is $10 million and the blood of a... Uh, unsacrificed virgin. So, that's what Ro Khanna thinks about you and your small businesses, those of you who own one. All right, let's keep going. From the New York Post. Adding wokeness, Oregon promotes teacher program 
to subtract racism in mathematics from Sam Dorman. The Oregon Public Department of Education recently encouraged teachers to register for training that encourages ethnomathematics. <clears throat> oh boy. By the way, I haven't read this article previously, so I have no idea what's going on here. Just what the headline said. And argues, among other things, that white supremacy manifests itself in the focus on finding the right answer. <clears throat> An ODE newsletter sent last week advertises a February 21st Pathway to Math Equity microcourse, which is designed for middle school teachers to make use of a toolkit for dismantling racism in mathematics. The event website identifies the event as a partnership between California's San Mateo County Office of Education the Education Trust West, and others. Part of the toolkit includes a list of ways white supremacy culture allegedly infiltrates math classrooms. Those include the focus on getting the right answer, students being required to show their work, and other alleged manifestations. Wow. Wow. Guys, math is racist. The concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false. And teaching it is even much less so, the document for the Equitable Math Toolkit reads. Upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuates objectivity, as well as fear of open conflict. Wow. <clears throat> hmm. Do you see where this kind of goes down the path of 2 plus 2 equals 5? You remember that last summer when they were on Twitter trying to, actually trying to tell you that 2 and 2 equals 5? And they use rounding as their citation? Well, if you round 2.4, that you round that down to 2 because you round it down. So 2.4 plus 2.4 equals 4.8, and you round 4.8 up to 5. Somebody actually made that argument over on Twitter. And I was just blown away by the fact that it happened. But yes, you guys, math is racist now. Okay. Um, this one was circling around the... Uh, trending and i didn't find an article to corroborate it unfortunately but uh thought you guys would enjoy talking about this here molly lambert tweets out la city council gave over a billion dollars in subsidies to hotels in the last decade now there's free fema money to house the houseless in those hotels and the la city council is dragging their feet hashtag seize the hotels that's right they're not even going to try and tell you and avoid telling you that they're going to seize the means of production. They're just going to seize them. He him tweets back out, replying to Molly Lambert and LA City Council, why don't you house a homeless person in your home? There you go. You have that means of production, and you probably have a room or two, especially if you're blue checked. House three or four of the homeless people in your home. There you go. All right. So, that's happening. From the New York Times, a former newspaper, this is an op-ed. Don't go down the rabbit hole. Critical thinking, as we're taught to do it, isn't helping the fight against misinformation. That's right. 
being critical of the mainstream narrative isn't helping the fight against misinformation from Charlie Warzel. For an academic, Michael Caulfield has an odd request. Stop overthinking what you see online. Mr. Caulfield, a digital literacy expert at Washington State University, Vancouver, knows all too well that at this very moment, more people are fighting for the opportunity to lie to you than at perhaps any other point in human history. Misinformation rides the greased algorithmic rails of powerful social media platforms and travels at velocities and in volumes that make it nearly impossible to stop. That alone makes it, uh, information warfare an unfair fight for the average internet user. <clears throat> Excuse me, But Mr. Caulfield argues that the deck is stacked even further against us, that the way we're taught from a young age is to evaluate and think critically about information is fundamentally flawed and out of step with the chaos of the current internet. We're taught that in order to protect ourselves from bad information, we need to deeply engage with the stuff that washes up in front of us, Mr. Caulfield told me recently. He suggested that the dominant mode of media literacy, if kid gets uh, kids get taught any at all, is that you'll get imperfect information and then use reasoning to fix that somehow. But in reality, this, that strategy is uh, can completely backfire. In other words, resist the lure of rabbit holes in part by reimagining media literacy for the internet hellscape we occupy. It's often counterproductive to engage directly with content from an unknown source, and people can be led astray by false information. Influenced by the research of Sam Weinberg, a professor at Stanford, and Sarah McGrew, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland, Mr. Caulfield argued that the best way to learn about a source of information is to leave it and look elsewhere, a concept called lateral reading. For instance, imagine you were to visit Stormfront, a white supremacist message board, to try and understand racist claims in order to debunk them. Even if you see through the horrible rhetoric at the end of the day, you gave that place however many minutes of your time, Mr. Caulfield said. Even with good intentions, you run the risk of misunderstanding something because Stormfront users are way better at propaganda than you. That's a bit of a uh, heavy-handed thing to say coming from the New York fucking Times. You won't get less racist by reading Stormfront critically, but you might be overloaded by information and overwhelmed. Our current information crisis, Mr. Caulfield argues, is an attention crisis. The goal of disinformation is to capture attention, and critical thinking is deep attention, he wrote in 2018. People learn to think critically by focusing on something and contemplating it deeply to follow the information's logic and inconsistencies. Right, that's why I'm not a conspiracy theorist. That natural human mindset is a liability in an attention economy. It allows grifters, conspiracy theorists, trolls, and savvy attention hijackers to take advantage of us and steal our focus. Whenever you give your attention to a bad actor, it's me, I'm I'm bad actor, that's me. You allow them to steal your attention from better treatments of an issue and give them the opportunity to warp your perspective, Mr. Caulfield wrote. That's me. I'm a bad actor. Right here. I can't, I, I can't even begin with this. This is like the opposite of what I tell you guys to do at the end of my long-form program at the end of my solo videos, and even my pinned fucking tweet over on Twitter. 
Find all the facts and draw your own conclusions. Don't let these assholes tell you what it is that you're supposed to think. And this is Mr. Caulfield writing here. And Charlie Warzel coming back and reiterating what Mr. Caulfield said. Telling you, don't look into these sites. Just believe us when we tell you that they're bad. Don't try to debunk their arguments because you'll get sucked in. Now, I am not a believer in racism or anything that's going to be on Stormfront, but I will look into this and see what it is that they're trying to say and see what the inconsistencies are because I can't just run on one narrative and neither can anybody else. This is literally the New York Times coming out and saying, we will be the propaganda department and we will tell you what the propaganda... This is... Eurasia has always been at war with Oceania. That's what this is right here. This is ultimately horrifying, the fact that they're trying to do this. But definitely something to look into. Let's keep going here. I got one from CBS News. U.S. Judge Esther Salas tells her story on 60 Minutes. From Keith Zubro. Judge Esther Salas and her husband, Mark, described their only child, Daniel, as the center of their universe, a 20-year-old college sophomore who wanted to squeeze the joy out of every situation. On January, uh, July 19th, rather, 2020, the tight-knit family of three were in the basement cleaning up from Daniel's birthday party. When the doorbell rang at the New Jersey home, Daniel raced up the stairs to respond to a man dressed as a FedEx driver. Moments later, gunshots broke the silence of the quiet suburban street. Daniel shot in the chest lay at the foot of the front door. Mark shot three times with clinging to life on the porch. Daniel died on the way to the hospital. Mark is still recovering from multiple surgeries. On Sunday, Judge Salas revealed to 60 Minutes the harrowing new details about the plot by a former plaintiff to assassinate the judge and possibly others. Who knows what could have happened, Salas said to uh, correspondent Bill Whitaker. But we need to understand that judges are at risk. We need to understand that we put ourselves in great danger every day for doing our jobs. This fact has to wake us up. And also, keep in mind the fact that uh, Salas was supposed to be on the Maxwell case. Don't forget that. So, as I mean... Yes, we come out and find out that this is somebody who was prosecuted by uh, Salas at uh, one point, and you know he was into MGTOW and all this other kind. Of, that you remember this from uh, back over the summer when this all happened. But in all honesty, I feel like this has less to do with the fact that this woman that this woman tried this case, and more to do with the fact that uh, they found somebody. And I don't even know. This is one of the big things for me. Because the guy went off and he shot himself afterwards. So I don't know if he was the one that took the shot at Daniel or if they just happened to conveniently find the murder weapon on the lifeless corpse with bullets that were fired from the murder weapon in the lifeless corpse afterwards. I just said I'm not much for conspiracy theory, but uh, I mean, there are way too many conveniences in this one to completely ignore it. So, definitely something to look at here. But, 
she shared a story over on 60 Minutes last night. I guess it was very harrowing, and a lot of people were tuned in and glued to the TV for it. We got to keep going. From the Daily Wire, Instagram user raises more than a million dollars for Planned Parenthood despite Rush Limbaugh, proving once again that private charity and the free market do better than the government ever will on anything. The government sucks at everything. From John Brown, a user on Instagram managed to raise more than a million dollars for Planned Parenthood as a gesture of spite against the late radio host Rush Limbaugh. Tommy Marcus, who goes by the username Quentin Quarantino and describes himself as leftist scum on his Instagram bio, started fundraising Wednesday by posting a photo of a $100 donation he made to Planned Parenthood in memory of Limbaugh. So you're going to help them kill more little black babies. Many others began to take Marcus's lead in donating to the organization, after which he made a public fundraising campaign with the intention of raising $10,000. The Quentin Quarantino Rush Limbaugh Memorial Planned Parenthood fundraiser surpassed a million dollars on Saturday. Once again, proving the fact that the private industry and private charity will do better than the government ever will. And guess what? You're also going to be having a lot less taken off the top than if that money had gone through the private government and passed through the pockets of several bureaucrats and other people up at the top of the government. All right, let's keep going here. Let's talk about Coca-Cola. Because this is stupid shit that happened this week. Coca-Cola promotes anti-white rhetoric, invites backlash from WION web team. I had another one here from Forbes, but it was taken forever to archive and, you know, ad blocker. Coca-Cola Company is facing major backlash after promoting anti-white rhetoric, including demands that they try to be less white. Carlin Borisenko, an organizational psychologist and an activist against critical race theory, indoctrination, shared images at the training materials from a whistleblower at Coca-Cola who received an email from management announcing the course on whiteness, white fragility, and racial justice. <clears throat> Confronting racism, understanding what it means to be white, challenging what it means to be racist. To be less white is to be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble, listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity. In the U.S. and other Western nations, white people are socialized to feel that they're inherently superior because they are white. He read, knowing the fact that just six years ago, he was wondering where his next meal was going to be coming from. A spokesperson for Coca-Cola responded to the images on social networking platform Twitter. The video circulating on social media is from a publicly available LinkedIn learning series and is not the focus of our company's curriculum, the spokesperson said, but added that the course is a part of the learning plan to help build an inclusive workplace. Conservative author and Blexit founder Candace Owens also reacted to the allegations on Twitter. <clears throat> you know, I don't like Candace Owens, but she gets some wood on the ball every once in a while. If a corporate company sent around a training kit instructing black people on how to be less black, the world would implode and lawsuits would follow. 
I genuinely hope these employees sue Coca-Cola for blatant racism and discrimination. And that's just it. And that's like I always say. Always, 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 when you're looking at something like this, reverse it. Throw the reverse card on it. If you're an Uno fan. If this was black, if this was... That's the same thing with politics. If you're outraged... Uh, no, if you're praising something that somebody's doing, one of your favorite politicians is doing, before you go off and give them and heap a bunch of praise on them, reverse the political party and see if you'd still be praising that person. If a person in the opposite political party did it. And it's the same thing with this. You look at images like this and change every white in there to black. And then tell me if you still feel the same way about it. So that was a little bit of hot water for these guys. And a lot of people picked up on that. And there was a lot of conversation about that over the weekend. All right. From the Hill. Boy Scouts celebrating first female Eagle Scouts. From Zach Butrick. The Boy Scouts of America are set to welcome the first class of female Eagle Scouts on Sunday evening after the program began accepting them in 2019. Nearly a thousand girls and young women are set to be part of the first class, according to the Associated Press. The rank requires at least 21 merit badges, but one of the girls uh, set to achieve it, Isabella Tooney, has earned all 137. Wow, that's actually impressive. Witness history tomorrow, 221, with the entire BSA community. We're celebrating the inaugural class of female Eagle Scouts during a special Facebook Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, RSVP. Be the change. The quarantine helped a lot, she told the AP. I had a lot of time to spare. Tony grew up with an older brother in the Scouts and told the AP she'd always longed to join, jumping on the opportunity when the organization opened to girls in 2018. When the Boy Scouts opened up to the girls, I was so excited to get the opportunity to participate myself, she said. Official figures say that about 6% of the Scouts reached the rank. And once again, I actually don't have a problem with this because these are good skills that everybody should go out and learn, but reverse the gender. If it was a little boy who was coming up and rocketing to the top of the Girl Scouts, people would still be outraged about this. And once again, I, I never went to the Boy Scouts. Never once. I learned how to do most of what they learned how to do in the Boy Scouts by being a redneck from the country. Tie knots, sharpen knives, make a fire, all that kind of stuff. I learned that from being out on the farms and being out in the country, not necessarily going to scouting programs. But a lot of the city kids don't have the time to do any of that. They don't have the ability or the opportunity to go out and learn how to do that in the natural way that a lot of the rest of us out in the country do. So I understand the merit and the validity of the Boy Scouts. I just wasn't in the necessity to do it. And they do study a lot of survival things. Now, my cousin, who is an Eagle Scout, uh, went on a technology trip while he was uh, going for his Eagle Scout Um I don't know if it was at a resort or if it was out camping, but yeah, they went on a camping trip that was solely focused on technology, computers, um, upcoming cell phone technology, that kind of thing. He went on that kind of a, a trip 
when he was an Eagle Scout. But yeah, for the most part, the survivalism, everybody should know that to begin with. From the top down, men, women, and otherwise. But I guess if you want to see how this uh, feels and just reverse the genders on that. So that's what I have to say. That And congratulations to the girl. I mean, that couldn't have been hard. I mean, so that was hard. That couldn't have been easy was what I meant to say off that. That could not have been easy at all to come back out. 137 merit badges. That is impressive. And I don't care what her plumbing is. She's earned that Eagle Scout. All right, let's keep going. I got a couple more here from a couple local Fox affiliates. Then we'll do something that restores my faith in humanity and head on out of here. From Fox 10 out of Phoenix, Operation Broken Hearts, police arrest 37 in child sex trafficking operation from Brent Corrado. <clears throat> police say 37 people have been arrested in connection to a large-scale child sex crimes and human trafficking operation. The Phoenix, Mesa, Temp, and Chandler Police Departments partnered with Homeland Security and the Arizona Attorney General's Office for Operation Broken Hearts, an undercover operation targeting sexual predators engaged in sex crimes and human trafficking, authorities said on February 19th. Throughout the operation period, officers and undercover detectives placed ads on websites and apps which are commonly sought by suspects seeking illegal acts with children, read a portion of Phoenix Police Statement. Police say suspects who range in ages from 21 to 66 solicited sex acts with undercover officers and were subsequently arrested. Well, good. If you want to talk about what a legitimate purpose of government is, I would say borders are a legitimate purpose of government. And getting fucking kitty diddlers off the streets are a legitimate purpose of government. Because that's not a victimless crime. As much as the kitty diddlers over on Twitter try to tell you this is a victimless crime and the kids can consent, they can't. They can't. Once, once and for all, they cannot consent. They do not have the mental capacity to consent. So, and the libertarian side of Twitter says that these uh, people all belong in a wood chipper. So the only thing that I would come out and say is they're getting off easy because of the government stepping in on this. They get a trial by jury, and they're probably going to live. A miserable life, mind you, but they're probably going to live. So, But good, good. Get these people up off the street. 37 arrests. Glad to see it. Hopefully some of these kids also were able to get home. All right, I've got one from Fox 5 out of New York. Border Patrol finds 44 pounds of cocaine-coated cornflakes worth nearly $3 million. From Jordan Smith. When Customs and Border Protection narcotics dog Bico alerted authorities to a large shipment of cereal on February 13th, it probably didn't come as a surprise when the white powder and grayish substance covering the flakes was not frosting. After all, Cincinnati Port Director Richard Galepsi said drug smugglers will hide narcotics in anything imaginable. Authorities tested the substance and learned that the 44-pound shipment of cornflakes had been coated with cocaine, valued at $2,822,400. But thanks to Border Patrol agents and their canine, the Peruvian shipment was stopped before it could reach the destined private residence in Hong Kong. 
The men and women at the Port of Cincinnati are committed to stopping the flow of dangerous drugs, and they continue to use their training, intuition, and strategic skills to prevent these kinds of illegitimate shipments from reaching the public, Gillespie said in a new release. Could you imagine if that shipment got mixed up with a real shipment of cornflakes and you were the one that happened to... I'm sorry, not uh, cornflakes, frosted flakes, and you were the one that happened to, to pour that bowl and how good you would feel after that happened? Could you imagine? I know the DEA is going to be feeling pretty good for the next few days. Man, they're going to be feeling good. But, of course, if you end the drug war, you wouldn't have to worry about a lot of this stuff. But yeah, who has time for rational solutions? Am I right? All right. And the last one we do on a Monday is something that restores my faith in humanity. And... Nothing could be better than this story here out of the Show Me State in Missouri. This comes to us over from the Daily Wire. Sheriffs can arrest feds who violate citizens' gun rights, New Missouri County Ordinance says. Be still, my little Federalist heart. I'm so excited for this. From Hank Berrien. One Missouri county, concerned that the federal government might infringe on the Second Amendment rights of its citizens, passed an ordinance this month which would invalidate any such attempts by the federal government. The Second Amendment Preservation Act of Newton County, Missouri states, Be it enacted by the Newton County, Missouri Commission, as follows all federal acts, laws, orders, rules, and regulations passed by the federal government, and specifically any presidential administration, whether past, present, or future, which infringe on the people's right to keep and bear arms are uh, as guaranteed by the Second Amendment to the United States and Article 1, Section 23 of the Missouri Constitution, shall be invalid in the county, shall not be recognized by this county, and specifically rejected by this county, and shall be considered null and void, and of no effect in this county. Such acts, laws, orders, Rules and regulations include, but are not limited to any tax, levy, fees, or stamp imposed on firearms, firearm accessories. Man, I would love to be able to come back out and call that my job. My brother-in-law does that, though, so. I sell firearms and firearms accessories. Or ammunition, not common to all other goods and services. Any registration or tracking of firearms, firearm accessories or ammunition, any act ordering the confiscation of firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition, and finally, any act, whether past, present, or future, passed by the U.S. Congress and signed into law by the federal government, and specifically any presidential administration which infringes on the people's rights to keep and bear arms in Newton County, Missouri, shall be considered null and void by the county and not recognized by this county. The law adds, any and all federal agents trying to enforce the regulations listed in Section 1 shall be subject to arrest by the Sheriff's Department. Well, good. I know a lot of people were taught in school that the federal government has the final say on everything. Well, they don't. That's why we have a Tenth Amendment. So, and yes, for the federal government to come down and pass these laws is illegal. And that would be considered a theft. A victim crime. And the Sheriff's Department of Newton County has come out and said, well, if you're going to commit a crime, you're going to get arrested. Which is good. I love that. I love to see it. I absolutely do. We need more of this. We need a lot more of this. Because 
The federal government's going to keep growing and keep growing, and it's going to stay out of check. And now it's time for the Tenth Amendment to rise up and my little federal heart to beat faster. As the states come back and say, no, no, you were never meant to have that kind of power. I don't think it would ever happen in my state, but it should. But it absolutely should. Maybe one of the counties, though, might do it. But it absolutely should. You'll love to see it. You'll love to have it happen. And that's going to be it for the day. So I'm going to head on out of here. I'm going to rest up my voice here because I have another show yet to do tonight. So we'll be back here at 530 Central Time tonight for the Red and Ed show. Looking into what happened in Texas. We're also going to look into some of the... uh, some of the Dolly stuff, some of the stimulus stuff, and some of the stuff coming out of the Biden administration. So looking forward to that. Looking forward to hanging out with you guys and my wonderful co-host Elaine as we look through the news of the week and have the good conversation about that. Hope to see you there. Otherwise, we'll be back here at 745 tomorrow morning, Central Time, for more Contemporary. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Take care.